Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Dig, the History Podcast. Trees live. Some even get sick and die. Some are cut down in the prime of their lives by storms, beavers, or humans. If you stand alone in the middle of a forest, you can almost hear them talk to each other. And the rustle of the leaves, the creak and groan of the wood, the nuts and fruits dropping to the loamy floor beneath. Oh, man. You weren't holding anything back. No, I was not. If you're out in the forest, it's almost easy to believe that a tree threatened might fight back. In Japan, recognizing the spirit of inanimate things, from trees to mountains to interestingly shaped rocks, is part of Shinto. Older than writing in Japan, Shinto is the root of Japanese values and ways of thinking. Shinto is why the concepts of purity and impurity govern daily life in the simple acts of gargling, hand-washing, and removing shoes upon entry to a home. Shinto grounds the rites of passage in an individual's life, like blessing children at ages 3, 5, and 7, and all birthday milestones, 14 or 15, 20, 60, 70, and 88 thereafter. Many of the major festivals still celebrated in Japan are Shinto, and the practice of opening ceremonies, annually opening hiking trails, annually opening the sea, or the purification of new buildings, are also Shinto. And of course, the centrality of nature in art and literature are Shinto. The pervasiveness of Shinto is fascinating, and that's what today's story is about. In the 1970s, the Japanese government wanted to cut down a 700-year-old tree to build a train station. But that tree didn't want to be cut down, and according to local legend, it got its way. Is this a case of tree wraiths cursing people? Is it the inherent environmentalism of Shinto and, by extension, Japanese culture? 
Or is it something entirely inexplicable? I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Sarah Hanley Cousins. And we're your historians for this episode of Dig. In a heavily forested, temperate, mountainous, and volcanically active archipelago like Japan, it is not surprising that the people living there would develop an early animistic religion. When the very earth moves hundreds of times a year and you don't have any Geiger counters to understand why, the spirit of all things seems as good an explanation as any. But this is certainly not unique to Japan. Animistic religions assigning divine or spiritual entities to elements of nature are the earliest religions all over the world, reflecting humans trying to make sense of their environment. Shinto, which means way of the gods, was a term first used in the 6th century of the Common Era. What we know about early Shinto is that it was generally practiced in one of two ways. Ujigami was based on the extended family shrine and revolved around ancestor worship. This emerged largely from clan-based kinship networks in early Japan and, and emphasized filial piety and hierarchies within the family. Hitagami Shinto was based on relationships of individual priest figures to specific kami. Kami, as a concept, encompasses a range of spirits and divinities. One's ancestors are kami, but there might be kami in a gnarled old tree, a weirdly formed rock, the peal of thunder, a gurgling stream, or even a scurrying rat. And while there might be divinities in all kinds of natural phenomena, there were also a few discernible kami who resembled Western gods. Amaterasu, the sun goddess, is particularly important in the Japanese pantheon, and in a way represents the merging of the different facets or manifestations of Shinto. She is the kami of the all-powerful sun, but she is also worshipped by the imperial family as their ancestor. This was written down in the 7th century, when the imperial family wanted to solidify their claim to authority through divine right. Prince Shotoku, who ordered the recording of Japanese history and his family's divine right to rule, also described the major religions of Japan as a tree, in which Shinto is the roots of the tree, embedded in the very heart of the Japanese people. Confucianism is the trunk and the branches, providing politics, morality, and education. And Buddhism is the flowers, where religious feelings bloom. Confucianism and Buddhism, of course, came to Japan from the West. Shotoku was largely responsible for spreading Buddhism in Japan in the 7th century. But when the imperial family embraced Shinto, ultimately making it the imperial faith, it began to be standardized in a way that animistic religions elsewhere usually are not. Right, yeah, that's interesting. Shinto tends to move in and out of the foreground of Japanese worship practices in a sort of dance with Buddhism. Sometimes they share the spotlight. Sometimes one is more prominent than the other, depending on who is in power in the Japanese government. Imperial family versus shoguns versus fascists. Shinto doesn't have a Siddhartha Gautama to give it a central doctrine. And other than believing that ancestors are spirits who live among us, it doesn't give much direction for morality or afterlife questions. It's more concerned with this worldly stuff, stemming from its earliest manifestations as a system of asking for blessings and good luck, rather than asking for forgiveness for wrongdoing. 
because of the lack of central doctrinality and the focus of the this-worldly stuff, some scholars don't even think of Shinto as a religion. It's more a way of thinking and living, and possibly more useful as a way to understand Japanese-ness. Jason Josephson, for instance, has explored this specifically in the context of the adoption of Shinto as a state ideology during the Meiji period, starting in 1868. And take note that Sarah has said state ideology rather than state religion, which is usually how Shinto is discussed within the Meiji period. Historian Jason Josephson argues that the Meiji state defined religion as private, and in theory, everyone was allowed to practice whatever religion they wanted on their own time. Shinto, on the other hand, was the public, de-Buddhistified, mandatory rituals that by extension of the Meiji modernization and ideology, were effectively secular in theory and practice. And the Meiji period is really where we can bring our tree story to fruition. Ooh, that was clever there. <laughs> For one thing, Shinto was co-opted by the Meiji emperor, who had wrested control of Japan from the Tokugawa shogunate. The forward-thinking emperor established a parliament to create a new ruling class of people and launched Japan on a rapid industrialization and westernization path. Pretty much everything about Japanese life changed in some way. The very way that Japanese men dressed shifted to the western-style three-piece suit, replacing the traditional kimonos in public life. Um, everyone go <laughs> read... The Clockmaker of Filigree Street, mm, which is about... Watchmaker. Yeah. The, excuse me, The Watchmaker of Filigree Street, um, which is sort of about this time period, yes, right? That yes. it's set because I remember the fact that he dresses in a suit. What's his name? Now that you said that, I can't think of it. I can't think of Katsu the octopus. The octopus. <laughs> um, but either way, either way, apologies um, to the author, um, who I am definitely going to tag on Twitter. But... Um, this there's a big deal about him wearing a suit right right and people are like surprised to see this very handsome japanese man wearing a three-piece suit right anyway anyway okay coming back around sorry i got distracted thinking yeah, yeah, about yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like my favorite book ever That's all right good. shinto as the traditional faith of the imperial family was essential to the ritualistic worship of the emperor and his family buddhism had been the religion of the shogunates in the last decades of the 19th century, Emperor Meiji faced out Buddhism in the public realm. From then on, the nation stood with Japan's leaders in the Shinto opening of the sea ceremony, witnessed the tearing down and rebuilding of the shrine at Isa every 20 years, and embraced the Japanese-ness of daily and annual rituals of Shinto. State Shinto was purposeful and powerful. And its reassertion as the Japanese religion undoubtedly ushered in a return to those nature-focused sentiments. In addition, under the Meiji Emperor, who ruled until his death in 1912, Japan underwent rapid industrialization. Just as in the UK and America, industrialization was disastrous to the Japanese environment. Air pollution from factories and energy production facilities, clear-cutting forests for increased agricultural output, and mining were all detrimental and necessary to Japanese modernization. But the Japanese were also able to pick and choose European and American industrial practices, technologies, and sciences. A more enfranchised populist protested the environmental deterioration, 
In 1900, for example, when deforestation around a copper mine allowed frequent flooding to poison farmers' fields and families, 2,000 of them marched in protest on Tokyo. Government officials in the Meiji uh, period, so that's 1868 to 1912, and the Taisho uh, period, that's 1912 to 1926, were more likely to bend to these kinds of overt public pressures. Ultimately, clear-cutting of forests was stopped in Meiji, Japan, and 70% of Japan remains forested as a result. Scholars like Brendan Barrett continually point back to the influence of Shinto to explain this environmental consciousness. While farmers getting sick off copper solvents in the floodplains probably had more self-preservation on their minds than environmentalism, the Meiji period also saw a resurgence of nature and environment themes in art and literature. In the early Meiji period, the push to westernize really shaped the aesthetic in painting and the visual arts. But by the turn of the, tw- of the century, traditional Japanese aesthetics regained popularity. So everything from the decoration on vases to oil paintings and even poetry incorporated nature in some way. Um, and we will link to a really great primer in the show notes on Meiji period art. So you can look at some of the beautiful work that came out of Japan at this time, uh, like an intricately cast silver stand that looks like an ocean wave and holds up a crystal sphere. Or the paintings that I think of from this time that have like a lot of gold and silver paint in them and tend to be sort of tranquil nature scenes. I actually have one of these triptych, uh, triptych paintings of storks in a swamp with a few twisty trees at the edges that I inherited from my grandparents because they had a Japanese exchange student like way back in the 60s and she gave them this painting in a bamboo frame as a thank you gift. So Meiji period artists like sculptor Takamura Kotaro blend Western style with Japanese themes. And he's actually a really kind of weird but good example because he's also known for his poems. And poems are easy to sort of easier to describe to you than um, paintings. Uh, And even his poems invoke nature themes. So this is one, for example. There is no road ahead of me. The road follows behind me. O nature, father, magnificent father. You gave me independence. Watch over and protect me forever. Always fill me with your vitality for this long journey of mine, for this long journey of mine. Like most Shinto grounded thought, this movement focused on humanity's oneness with nature. We are not greater or above our physical environment, and by extension, we must protect it. Perhaps this sentiment is the heart of the consciousness that Barrett argues permeated Japan, moving communities to protest actions they saw as harmful. In Neyagawa, a suburb of Osaka, Japan, a 700-year-old kusunoki tree twists out of the ground, standing some 65 feet tall at its highest. A tree native to the region, as well as southern China, Korea, and Vietnam, the kusunoki, or camphor in English, blooms with little white flowers in the spring among bright green leaves. The leaves smell most strongly of camphor, that sort of heady, aromatic undertone of pretty much everything from embalming fluid to mint and rosemary. Yeah, it's very pungent. Very pungent. Camphors, like this one, are often made up of multiple tree stems, splitting off from the same root system and stretching wide and tall. 
For generations, the Neyagawa tree, called the Big Kusu tree of Kayashima by the locals, grew tall and sprawling, and people respected it for its grandness. In 1910, the Japanese government built a train station next to the tree, and those waiting for a locomotive ride into Osaka could enjoy the shade of the big tree. So a side note. By the time Big Kusu enters the historical record, Japan was basically a parliamentary democracy. Shinto was the state religion. The country had undergone a rapid industrialization, and things like trains were common and widespread. Like many of the new democracies in the early 20th century, however, the Taisho government was unstable and fell fairly quickly to fascist elements, and the Showa period started. In the pre-1945 period, the Showa emperor was worshipped as a living god, and the military ran the authoritarian government. These were the folks who invaded China in 1937 and sent bombers into Pearl Harbor in 1941. After Japan's defeat in 1945... Didn't the Japanese invade Manchuria earlier than that, too? 1931? Yeah, I think so. Um, that, that's beside the point. After Japan's defeat in 1945, prefaced by the atomic bombs that the Americans dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killing hundreds of thousands and creating disastrous ecological effects, uh, not to mention kicking off you know, a world at war for the rest of that century mm-hmm. and uh, into today, uh, Japan was occupied by the Allied forces, who excised state religion, returned Japan to a democracy, and demoted the emperor god down to a constitutional monarch. The Showa emperor lived and ruled until 1989. When he died. Wow. In early post-war Japan, many Shinto shrines were taken down to make way for roads and buildings. Japan recovered economically quite rapidly, sort of akin to the economic miracle in Western Europe after the war, and became one of the fastest growing economies in the world, second only to the United States until the 1990s when it was surpassed by China and entered a period of stagnation. According to, I- to Aiki Rots, Shinto made a resurgence in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s reforming as what Rots calls a Shinto environmentalist paradigm which drew on the connections between Shinto shrines, rituals, and nature. And that the proponents of Shinto environmentalism emphasized an ancient ecological knowledge, which instructed the Japanese how to live in harmony with nature. Mm. The ancient knowledge claims are perhaps exaggerated, and that's sort of what Rotz is suggesting. But the emergence of this paradigm in post-war Japan is important to consider, particularly with regard to our big kusu tree, but also Japanese culture and environmentalist practices more broadly. In 1972, the local government of Neyagawa wanted to build a new, larger train platform to accommodate the traffic going in and out of Osaka through the Kayashima stop. Neyagawa was a burgeoning suburb, and the 1910 platform simply was not meeting the demands of commuters using the train. They announced their intentions to build the multi-level platform, which would include cutting down Big Kusu, which was exactly in the middle of where the planned platform would stand. The people of Neyagawa and Big Kusu itself, according to local legends, were not happy. A kami resided in Big Kusu, and when threatened, the kami resisted. There were rumors that a white snake, a symbol of the Shinto deities, had been seen slithering around the trunk of the tree. 
A man who tried to cut off a limb developed hay fever. Oh, my God. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> he got seasonal allergies. <laughs> <laughs> and residents reported seeing smoke rising from the tree. Some accounts said it from its roots. Others said from its top. The locals were all worked up and pressed their government officials until they agreed not to cut down the tree. Instead, though considerably more costly than the original design, the platform was built around the tree. Construction began in 1973 and finished in 1980. It included a rectangular opening in the ceiling of the platform, which allowed the tree to continue to grow upward and outward. Today, Big Kusu, still inside the train platform, is properly surrounded by a Shinto shrine. You probably already have some idea of what a Shinto shrine looks like, but we'll post a few examples um, on the blog when we post the show notes for this episode. Um, That is if I remember to do the images. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, The entrance is flanked by the Tori, which is basically a gate. The Tori are usually the most recognizable elements of a shrine. These are the red beams that look like an H with a hat sitting on top. (laughs) It's the best way I could think to describe it. (laughs) That's so cute. It's the hat part that makes me laugh. Okay. The elements making up the rest of the site vary. Sometimes the stairs behind the Tori lead to a pretty elaborate compound of buildings serving the needs of worshippers and kami alike, including an administrative building, a honden or building that would enshrine the kami, the lion guard statues that protect the space, a hand washing station, and more. Sometimes shrines are much simpler, consisting of a Tori and nothing more. But most have structures of some kind, in part because of the influence of Buddhism on Shinto after the 7th century. And that's just because Buddhism requires some sort of space for meditation. So they were usually next door to each other, mm. and it wasn't until the Meiji period that the those the intentionality of Shinto shrines being built was separated from, um, from Buddhist shrines. Got it. Temples. So Big Kusu Shrine is not particularly special. There are about 80,000 shrines in Japan today, and they can be large, small, or even portable. The Shrine of Isa, uh, which houses the imperial family's kami, the sun goddess Amaterasu, is ritually taken down and rebuilt every 20 years. Yeah, it's and really cool yeah, to see it. They've been doing this since 4 BCE. It's nuts. <laughs> it's like it's it's amazing. 2,000 years. <laughs> 2,100 years? Wait, what year is it right now? 2018? 2018. 2,000 years. <laughs> um... But there aren't many reminders in the urban parts of Japan that there, mi- there might be something greater than the consumerist, modern, industrial world that Japan has created for itself. A Shinto shrine inside a commuter pl- train platform surrounded, surrounding a 700-year-old tree might be the exception. Yeah, they're kind of forced to see it. Yeah. <clears throat> Currently, despite a population of 127 million, with most people living in areas uh, with over 5,000 people per square kilometer which is not a real thing um (laughs) like damn you and your whatever it's called metric system thank you metric system i see i hate it so much i just put it out of my brain uh about 12 percent of japan is protected parkland by comparison the united states which is many many times the size of japan in terms of landmass but only a little more than double the population only has about 14 percent of land designated as protected parkland in the United Kingdom, more comparable as another island nation um, with a 
highly dense population only has 7% of its land protected by a national park system. So obviously you don't need a pervasive religious inclination to have a respect for nature and the environment. National parks were created by countries all over the world in the 19th and early 20th century. Conservation and environmental protection legislation was passed in most industrial nations in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, and, and earlier in, in some places, particularly like England, where, you know, the pollution was earliest and worst. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in response to the truly horrific effects of a century of coal burning, chemical waste dumping, and landfill creation over the previous two centuries. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. And certainly the Japanese, both before and after industrialization, are not the epitome of an environmentally friendly and conscious people. Anthropologist Peter Kirby illustrates some of the more blatant scenes of Japanese disregard for the environment in four vignettes that are too good not to just quote here and now. (laughs) Right. So, during a routine safety check at a Tokyo community pool, three Japanese swimmers, two women and one man, all in their late 20s, sit on the pool edge and confess their discomfort with the fact that the pool water is heated by recycled energy from a major waste incinerator complex in the middle of which the pool uh, lies, whose enormous smokestack looms hundreds of feet above the swimming area. The community has been bombarded for months by media reports regarding the dangers of toxic pollution from incinerators in Japan. At a marina... Oh, sorry, I just touched your toes with my toes. At a marina along the coastline, tossed cans, plastic bottles, and other floatsome bob in the crevices of massive concrete tetrapods that create a breakwater there. On the long path to the parking lot, a middle-aged Japanese man, finding a pile of waste abandoned by yachters and others, public trash cans are extremely scarce in Japan, pulls out a lighter and starts burning the heaps of plastic bags, food wrappers, styrofoam trays, and leftover garbage, food garbage to protect against vermin, thereby creating a plume of acrid smoke that soon envelops the jetty. No. Mm-hmm. Four men tee off at a golf course on an artificial island in Tokyo Bay. Despite their good-natured grumblings, the men are forbidden to smoke on the course due to highly flammable gases wafting up through vents from the millions of tons of waste decomposing beneath the manicured fairways. In the distance on all sides, the expansive bayscape surrounding them is filled with similar islands made of garbage an inland sea of wastelands that provide valuable real estate for infrastructure and development. Yep. As befits the land of the rising sun, the Acme, is that how you say that? Mm-hmm. The Acme of Mount Fuji in, in summer is packed with hundreds of hikers huddled against the bitter cold and high winds at 12,388 feet to view the sunrise, the first moment the sun touches Japan. And of course, the real name of Japan is Nippon, which means land of the rising sun. Mm-hmm. Though Mount Fuji is regarded as a sacred peak and holds unparalleled significance in Japanese culture, the surface of the mountaintop is encrusted with drink cans, energy tonic ampules, empty water bottles, wrappers, and other detritus dropped by exhausted climbers who squeeze between the improbable noodle shops, vending machines, and souvenir stalls that crowd the summit. Ugh. 
As the dense stream of bodies, four or so abreast, shoulder to shoulder, trudge up the main trail, more climbers are able to reach the peak's volcanic summit and consume its amenities while returning hikers spill down the various descents like human lava. I mean, that reminds me of problems that the American national parks are having right now. They're having a huge boom in visitorship. Right. um, In part because they're selling the parks as a place to unplug Mm -hmm. from you know, our highly, you know, technological world, yeah, and yeah. social media and from your phones or whatever. Um, and that's very, very good for mm-hmm. the national parks, but it's actually destroying them. Right. And it's not all because not all people who go into, say, Adirondack State Park or wherever leave behind literal garbage, but a lot of them do. Yes. And they want to have amenities while they're there. They don't want to actually camp. Um, but, yeah, they, they people, people – want to experience that um that transcendence that is nature but they don't want to do it at an inconvenience to themselves Mm -hmm. these vignettes start on page three of kirby's book which we highly recommend that you pick up for a fascinating counterpoint to the defense of big kusu while all these are fascinating uh we're going to focus for a moment on the last one which actually comes first in kirby's book Mount Fuji is, of course, an important natural phenomenon in Shinto, Japan. Fuji is an active volcano. With Japan's hundreds of earthquakes every year, some markedly larger than others, of course, it is constantly on the brink of eruption. The Shinto worship of the Fuji Kami, a goddess named Konohana Sukuya Hime, is grounded in its ability to both destroy and create. She provides water, which the people at the foot of the mountain rely on for their rice fields and for drinking. But she could just as easily wipe them and their livelihoods off the face of the planet. And while fewer than 5% of the Japanese population identifies as Shinto in terms of religion, 80% of Japanese people actively participate in Shinto rituals and worship at shrines every year. So it's pretty astounding that visitors treat the mountain so poorly. Right, exactly, which raises the question, why was Big Kusu protected when there are islands made of trash and Mount Fuji is covered in garbage? <laughs> the basic answer, of course, is that people can be and are contradictory and complicated and stupid and weird. Right, absolutely. And I do think that Shinto is important to this conversation, despite the sort of contradictions. Mm-hmm. It may not govern all actions of the Japanese people as a whole or of their government. It obviously doesn't even govern the actions of many, many individuals. Aiki Rote's ar- argument that this Shinto environmentalist paradigm emerged in fairly recent decades carries a lot of weight. On the one hand, it would be foolish to say that because Shinto is an ancient indigenous religion, Japan is predisposed to being more environmentally conscientious. Clearly, with trash islands and litter all over Mount Fuji, that is not pervasively true. But the impact of the modern iteration of Shinto does seem quite powerful. Right. And today, uh, Shinto has been essentialized by politicians as Japanese tradition and culture, not religion, which makes it acceptable for politicians to make big public shows of worshiping at shrines. Very. I'm just going to pause there for a second because that's very, very interesting, isn't it? That 
the fact that it's not religion makes is what makes it acceptable for politicians to make a big public show of worshiping, mm-hmm. right? Where in the United States, it, that is the exact opposite, mm-hmm. right? I mean, even presidents who are kind of admittedly, personally, not particularly religious. They still have to say God Still bless. have to do all the trappings of American Protestant Christianity. There are so many problems with that that I could literally spit. Um, that's very interesting. Um, but anyway, anyway, so so very recently, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe um, has proposed changes to the Japanese constitution, which would allow for state support of Shinto shrines, defining them as Japanese culture, heritage or tradition, not as religious sites. For those who do consider Shinto a religion, this is obviously problematic. There are strict rules separating state and religion in Japan, which were laid down by the Allied powers after World War II. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which makes it even more f***ing unreal yep. that the United States, being the most powerful of those allied powers after World War II, was like, you're going to have strict separation of state and religion, just like we do in the civilized West. And look at how that works out here. Um, sorry. Sorry. I know. Frustrating. Because state Shinto fed into the fascism of the Showa period, such separation was seen as necessary in the rebuilding of Japan. But what this movement speaks more to is the continued reinvention of Shinto with each successive regime. It can be both essentialized as Japanese tradition and also embraced or used for its environmentalist elements by people like the locals of Neyagawa, or someone like Hayao Miyazaki. Yes! And I'm glad you bring Miyazaki up. Because his films tend to have strong Shinto environmentalist messages and imagery. And I'm thinking specifically here of Nausicaa in the Valley of the Wind, which has these powerful creatures that operate much like Kami do in various myths. They belong to or represent the toxic jungle, made toxic, by the way, by some ancient war waged by humans, and can be friends to people, but can just as easily kill those who threaten their home. The commentary on human abuses of the environment are unmistakable. And I actually was first introduced to Miyazaki's animation by a poorly, poorly Americanized edited version of Nausicaa called Warriors of the Wind, which was dubbed in English and released in the United States in 1985. And that version downplayed the environmental warrior and Shinto elements and made it more of a girl Jesus fighting evil story. <laughs> but, but even then, even then, you can't help but see the world decimated by human warfare, the horrific man-made war machines, and the centrality of wind power to human survival. Uh, it's actually incredible. And I think probably my first real exposure to ecological environmentalist issues. Really? Yeah, and I was like seven and i watched it like every day for 10 years my, i still have the vhs somewhere the the um that's really interesting to me because i think my first real exposure was that movie was it um, fern gully fern gully mm, yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. Fern, well between fern gully and captain planet yep yeah um, that yeah. was a big deal when we were kids like 80s. environmentalism was yeah. a big was a big part of pop culture and it way was that it's not it's anymore. not anymore yeah and I think, so I think that's actually like the point of all of Miyazaki's anime. Um, it's accessible and it's instructive for children. And it reaffirms these Japanese, you know, traditions, again, quote unquote, of Shinto environmentalism as recently imagined as, you know, that concept of Shinto environmentalism may be, depending on who you ask, 
if nothing else, it reflects the pervasiveness of these concepts in Japan. And particularly the the reoccurrence of that nature ecology theme in Japanese art and literature. That's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that that's really fascinating because I um, I have not seen this. I, I'm going to come out here. I'm going to make a confession that I really, really hate anime. Um, like really deeply. I can't watch it. It makes listen, me really angry. Listen, so I've never Miyazaki seen it. Miyazaki is not Dragon Ball Z. And I also love Dragon Ball Z. But Miyazaki is like, it's just amazing. I've never watched any. I've never watched, watched a You haven't watched Ponyo? Sing- no. I'm going to send you home with Ponyo. I think we have it. I think we have your copy of Oh, Ponyo. you have my copy The girls Ponyo. really liked it, but I have never seen it. Um, but but I think that that's very interesting that that was, um, that you were watching that um, at the same time, as like I said, um, Fern Gully and Captain Planet. Yeah. I mean, Fern Gully, like, like really f***ed my shit up, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and I also think of um, when I was in elementary school, I was probably in second grade. This guy came to our school, um, and it was like an assembly, except we didn't really have assemblies because our school was too small. It was like we went into the um, cafeteria, basically. Mm-hmm. And this guy came and sang songs, and all of his music was about environmental issues. Mm. And it was all about recycling and mm. composting. And, like, my my parents bought me his tapes because that was back in the day when you bought tapes. Yeah. Um, and I listened to his music constantly. I mean, it was huh. – issues of conservation and environmentalism were not just big you know in the media that i consumed when i was little in elementary school but it was very important in our household i mean we were composters we spent a lot of time outside um and and i i don't know maybe i'm being pessimistic but i feel like that's not it's not strong no there was a i feel like there was a boom like maybe 10 years ago and like the green like using green products and things like that but feel like some of that has kind of gone by the wayside right and when i think about the 90s because i mean that's when we were kids and then we, mm-hmm. were, we were observing Early 90s. all this stuff um like what about that period was so special yeah why did that yeah happen then yeah well i mean i wonder about like um because, I mean, there's this clear what uh, Rhodes is talking about with the emergence of an environmentalist Shinto paradigm. Mm-hmm. That coincides perfectly with Miyazaki's anime. Right. Because so, he's, he's producing films starting in the 80s and yeah. up until the, the you know early 2000s, late 2000s. Yeah. So, or creating movies. I assume he's an animator. And you'd think in the United States that that kind of boom in media about environmentalism would have happened. 10, 20 years before that like in the, the 70s. Silent spring kind of period, right? Yep, the Carson. creation of Earth Day, like yeah. all of that in like 1970, um, the the environmental movement of the 70s, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but maybe it's the kids who heard the messages of the 1970s. The kids up. of the parents, the, the people, the people who were part of those movements like in the, the 70s. Teen, yeah, the teens in the in the 20s have their kids in the 90s. And they are the ones who are producing that content right. like Captain Planet That's and like, true. Yeah. Um well the poorly dubbed Warriors of the Wind, but yeah. also um Fern Gully. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a I think that's a really good point. Um hmm. and I I find it I mean, I guess I, I am being a little overly pessimistic. I think there are some ways in which um, like, for instance, I think local eating local is really yeah. become really important. And f- a lot more people 
young people are going into farming and, yeah. and that kind of thing. And you and I go once a week to our farm and pick up our vegetables. I'm pretty sure that farm share. Um, I'm pretty sure that our farmers think that we are a family um, <laughs> to the point where, like, if one of us goes without the other, they're like, oh, is everything OK? <laughs> I don't know if they've ever said that to you, but they say it to me all the time. Oh, my God. That's um, whenever you're not there. But um, so I think that's I mean, that's certainly something that's good, but not I what I don't see and what I think is actually really disturbing about the current presidential administration is efforts towards deregulation. Yeah. And we can have all the local farming that we that we want, right? right? But if we deregulate, and the other thing that I saw that was interesting about this is, um, and about several of our episodes about the protection of parkland, right? Um, we're losing parkland. Mm-hmm. I mean, par- Bears Ears was just um, kind of decommissioned as a, as a park, right? Mm. Um, and I, that that's really a disturbing trend that's yeah. going back towards private ownership mm-hmm. and back towards the productivity of the land and not preserving it um, or conserving it, right? Yeah. So I find that really, really scary. Can I talk about your other question? Because I think yeah. it's really interesting. Which one about the, the trash? Commie? The commie. Where are the American those, commies? Those gross trash stories. <laughs> um, uh, so American commie. I think this is really interesting. And what I immediately thought of was um, when I was doing research for the episode that Elizabeth and I just did on um, the production of national forests and, and the creation of the national park system, all of that, um, the a lot of that was influenced by the writings of John Muir, mm-hmm. who was this naturalist. And he was um, he wrote extensively about his own travels and sort of brought that um those wildernesses that were very remote. I mean, nobody would ever go like, like a poor or middle class person in New York City was probably never going to go to the Yukon. Sure. Right. But through his writings, they were able to kind of find connection to it. Mm-hmm. And the way that he talks about it is like a national cathedral. It's like a religious place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I see sort of a, something similar there in terms of, you know, spirits or religious importance in natural features mm-hmm. um and i think that for some americans and i think especially maybe maybe not especially maybe i shouldn't say that but even for people who don't consider themselves religious yeah. there's still something transcendent to be found in those kinds of powerful places like the grand canyon and yosemite yeah. and yellowstone and niagara falls and niagara falls even though you know what's really interesting one of the efforts, one of the reasons um, that conservationists wanted so badly to protect Yosemite and Yellowstone was because they didn't want it to become Niagara like Niagara Falls. Falls? Tourist because Niagara Falls is like Mount Fuji. It is. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's so trashy. It's I mean, so like trashy. It's covered in trash and pavement. And... and it also is trashy. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's... Efforts have been made recently to clean up Niagara Falls and to change the culture of the area a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, and, of course, that gets into issues of gentrification. And yes. it's a lot more complicated than we're making it out to be. Um, but what's kind of the central problem of Niagara Falls is this amazing, singular, national, national natural, natural phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. that um, is surrounded by, like, Ripley's Believe It or Not. Yeah. And lots of bars, you <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting. Did you have any, like your college or, or just whatever, did you have any natural things that you would consider commie 
in your life? At college? Yeah. Or like, was there like a place or a symbol of the college? No, we didn't have or our, just wherever, our not thing even that everyone college. touched. Yeah. No, we didn't have your statue. No, but the, actually, the one of the symbols of Wells is a sycamore tree. Wow. We have this huge sycamore tree out in front of the main building, which is called Main. Um, oh, clever. And it is um, all of the traditions of the you know, the last day of classes. Everyone goes out and dances around the tree. Um, on May Day, you go out and dance around the tree. I mean, there's like this tree is really f-ing important to the school. Um and the rumor was when I was there, I don't, I don't know if this is actually accurate or not, but the rumor was that um, sycamore trees are not supposed to live that long, hmm. and they have foresters come in and like check it out all the time to make sure that it's not going to die. And I actually remember when I was there worrying, like, what is going to happen to this place when the sycamore goes? So we don't have a backup sycamore, Just, and even if we did, it wouldn't be in the right spot. We should wrap it up here. Um, Thanks for listening. Uh, make sure you find our transcript and pictures of the shrines that we're going to post on our website, digpodcast.org. You can always follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest. Uh, you can join our super secret, sort of secret Facebook group, Dig History Pod Squad. All you got to do is you know request to join us and mm-hmm. um, we'll let you in. And Marissa will welcome you with a really weird history meme which she thinks are really funny but they're usually sort of weird usually not really funny but she's a there special have been girl. some that are funny yeah there have been some that are funny and we are we usually talk about the episodes and we talk about other just weird historical like if you could go back in time and be any historical person who would you be or yeah. whatever that or kind marissa of posts things from her dissertation research all kinds of weird stuff yeah yeah but it's fun you should join us yeah you should join us you can leave us a review or a rating on itunes or wherever you listen just yes, because that helps us be visible to other things other listeners potential listeners and tell your friends if you haven't already about this podcast that is dig history podcast yes please um other than that we thank you for joining us on this fine day and go read watchmaker of filigree street yeah if you don't <laughs> if you don't pick up the the book by kirby which yes is, you should also do that because it's fascinating look at yes. japanese environmentalism and nature and you know pollution yeah. um but yeah re- read Watch- watchmaker of filigree street because it's our favorite book and you won't regret it natasha pulley pulley yes natasha pulley. natasha thank you for writing such awesome box keep it up <laughs> bye this podcast was produced by the historians of dig elizabeth garner Mazurik, sarah hanley cousins Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. Trees live. Now <laughs> <laughs> you made it sound weird, and I'm going to well, say it, it like that. weird. Wait, wait. Why did we... We didn't say our first name, our last names in the last episode. We just said I'm... We do it We do it different every time. That's weird. Okay, go yeah. on. Say it again. It is not particularly surprising that the people living there would develop an early animalistic religion. What? Animistic. Oh, sorry. Animalistic. There was a lot of big words in that. It included a rectangular open in the ceiling of the platform. Opening. What did I say? Open. <laughs> you know, they, they want to have... Yeah, they want to have... <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! <laughs>
the camera just took a picture I think it, of ju- us. it just stopped uh, recording. Oh, okay. <laughs> it shut down. That was scary. So recently, uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, his name is Abe, his name is Shinzo Abe. Sure. Okay. I have no idea. Okay. But you wrote it here. <laughs> I just copied it from from an article. Oh, maybe. They wrote it as Abe Shinzo. I wonder if in Japan it's the other way around or something. Maybe. It's, I, it's as far you as I know, Shinzo, Shinzo Abe. Abe. <laughs> yeah. Isn't there a... No, that's not true. Live free or die hard? No. <laughs> no, I was thinking of that old man in the rock or whatever. That mountain. That's oh, like yeah. A, the man with the face. Yeah. I don't know why. Is that Mount Mansfield? Nobody knows what it is. You don't know what it is. This is a really good discussion we're having. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Uh, We should we should wrap it up here. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.